Hey, I'm Steve Folland. Welcome to another one. This episode is supported by my course, How to Get Started Being Freelance. It's the course I wish I had. It's the course that you can have. It's based on my experience, but also the experience of over 200 guests of this here podcast. So if you're interested or you know someone who is, uh, get online to beingfreelance.com, click on the course button. Right now, though, let's find out what it's like being freelance for web designer Andy Clark. First of all, be adaptable. Things ain't going to stay the same. Keep an eye on trends and where things are going and make the most of opportunities that you get. Those are my three principles. Putting good content out into the world is a very, very good way of giving people a feeling for what you can do and what it might be like to work with you. And that's the the key difference. You know, there's 18 million people that can write CSS, most of them better than I can. But the experience of working with me is unique. Like it's the same, the experience of working with you is unique and the working with everybody is unique. Unless you're working with robots, it will be a different experience. And that is one of the most difficult but most important things as a freelancer to get over is how do I show people that I'm good and reliable and fun to be around? Yes, so that is Andy, who is a web designer based here in the UK, well known as a speaker and an author. Also, you may have even used his contract called Contract Killer that is available for free. I think you can donate if you use it, which uh, has helped so many and gets shared so often when people are asking about contracts. Uh, Yeah, looking forward to chatting to him about all of that. How are you? Are you all right? You're looking well, I must say. If you've not done so already, get to being freelance.com and come join us in the community you can click through and we have live q and a's we have fun we have discussions we have the non-employee of the week awards we have the book club it's all happening in the being freelance community click the button at beingfreelance.com and come and meet freelancers from around the world you're not alone being freelance why go through this on your own Come and chat to other people. Uh, Also, as I mentioned, the course has been going down really well. So chuffed with that. I put so much effort into it at the start of the year in particular, and it's so great to see it being used out in the world now. If you know somebody who is thinking of going freelance, new to freelance, or has only you know maybe been doing it a year or so and feels like there must be a better way, then tell them about it, please. It's at beingfreelance.com. You just click on the button that says course. Okay, uh, let's crack on, shall we, and speak to this week's guest. That is web designer Andy Clark. Hey, Andy. Hello. (laughs) Thanks for doing this. As ever, how about we get started hearing how you got started being freelance? Um, How did I get started? It was a deep, dark, windy night about (laughs) 20-odd years ago. And I was working for a a below-the-line ad agency in uh, the south of London, and We'd been doing a you know a bunch of web stuff along the way um, very very early on you know using front page etc and we decided on a whim that we were going to move right the way across the country from from um, actually in Suffolk um, over to North Wales I won't bore you with the whole story um, but I'd kind of expected that when we got up here I'd probably look for a job with a local agency in Chester or Manchester or or whatever. Um, and it didn't quite pan out like that. Um, two things happened. One was that people started to say to me, do you know anything about this internet thing? Um, and I would basically blag it and say, yes. And well, 20 years later, I'm still blagging it, um, <laughs> like a lot of other people. And then the other thing was, was that I, I got a call from an old friend of mine who was working with an American company. And he said, you know, we need some help doing something in Europe. Can, you know, do you think you can do it? You can work from home and, um, you know, we'll pay all the expenses and you might have to travel around Europe, um, you know, once in a blue moon. But most of the time, it'll be helping people over the phone or over the web or whatever. And I said, well, of course, because, you know, I had bugger all else to do. Can we say bugger all else on your show? Absolutely. 
Especially because people around the world, I've discovered, some people pick up English phrases from listening to this podcast. And that is a lovely one to add to their armoury. Oh, yes. Well, we can teach them all sorts of English (laughs) phrases during the the course of this podcast. Um, So this was great because this was going back to 98 now. And um, they were paying me £35,000 a year to answer the phone about three times a week. And I didn't have anything else to do. So I just decided that, well, you know, if people are asking me for this kind of webby thing, then, um, and this was at the time, of course, where, you know, you would phone up a local business, um, you know, Welsh widgets and say, you know, oh, this internet thing, would you like to talk about a website? And they would say, what's a website? So I didn't really have anything else to do. So we did that and started a, 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 a wee business and it kind of just went on from there. Um, so like a lot of things in my life and career, nothing was very well planned and everything was very accidental. So 1998, you have like a full time role, but like working remotely, basically answering the phone, giving advice about a particular product. Yes. Yeah. And then because people have started coming to you asking you whether you know about the internet, you decided to start designing websites from home. Yes, and that was it. Um, I was completely self-taught and... You know, going, this is going back to the day where, you know, we would do everything in front page or Dreamweaver. So there wasn't a particular technical excellence going on. But also, although I went to art school many, many years ago, I hadn't ever trained um, as a graphic designer, as a digital designer or whatever. So it's what I say about blagging it. Essentially, everybody, me particularly, is just always blagging and and learning. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of how it goes. So how did you go about getting those clients? Like, how did the few people know to come to you in the first place to ask you? And did you end up phoning up Welsh Widgets or other companies like Cold Calling to to get work? How how did your business grow? God, yeah, absolutely it did. I mean, we had a few people, you know, that we would know locally, um, you know, business people or whatever in, in, in North Wales. But the vast majority of the business in at least the first kind of four years or so was, um, and this is going to date me, it was going through yellow pages and phoning people up. And, you know, there were half a dozen kind of, you know, small, mainly terrible website design companies up around this kind of area, you know, across the North Welsh um, kind of corridor. But without blowing my own trumpet, I would outsell and outperform them, like consistently. And I was tenacious and I didn't take no for an answer. That's kind of how we got started, literally. And, you know, you've got to have a certain mentality for that. You know, you've got to have a reasonably kind of thick skin. But at the end of the day, if you, you know, like I was, you know, if I would, if I would see a business that I thought benefited, or I would see somebody with a terrible website that wasn't doing them justice, then, you know, I would be very keen and enthusiastic about doing something much better. So how did business grow or change from there? Because we're 23 years back in time. Yeah, I mean, things stayed the same for a long time. Um, I think it was up till about 2003, 2004, I suppose. So a good five years into into being a jobbing designer. And I know this podcast is... You know, it's it's got freelance in the title, but I think that you know, job for hire, you know, gun for hire is is essentially what we're talking about. You know, whether you do short jobs or long contracts, or you structure your business because you're self-employed, or you've got a small limited company like I have, um, it's all pretty much the same. You're just a gun for hire with no financial security, and. For the first kind of five years or so, it was, you know, it was really hand to mouth, um, and it changed slightly 
um, with the whole kind of advent of CSS and web standards and blogging and, you know, web conferences and stuff like that and book writing, where the focus of the business shifted from, you know, doing work for local businesses or UK businesses to now where pretty much everything is international. So let's talk about that then. So how did you how did you sort of grow that reputation from being the person working with a local community um, to sort of becoming more like an expert that people were coming to? I think this is a, a good lesson for people to to learn in general is to, first of all, be adaptable because particularly in this industry, things ain't going to stay the same. But also keep an eye on trends and where things are going and make the most of opportunities that you get. Those are my three kind of, you know, principles, if you like. And this was at a time when, you know, I was doing everything in Dreamweaver and thought I was the the bee's knees. And went to a, a seminar about web accessibility and one of the speakers was talking about HTML and CSS and I had no clue at all what he was talking about. I literally totally clueless. Sat there with a you know like a like a kipper with a blank look on my face. <laughs> and came home, did the thing that I always did when I wanted to find out how somebody had made a cool website was that I viewed source and copied the source into Dreamweaver, um, you know, pasted it in, previewed it in the browser, and it was a text document because I had no clue about the concept of HTML or CSS or the, you know, web standards and the structuring of content separation, blah, blah, blah. Um, I was completely dumbfounded, sat there with my mouth open. And then just made it my kind of mission because the at the time this that the resources available for learning CSS were limited to like three websites. Um, so I kind of made it my mission to kind of experiment and learn as much as I could on my own. And then when the whole kind of, you know, first wave of, of, of blogging enthusiasts came along, I did the same thing. And there was I was one of only a, a handful of you know, creative designers, I suppose, along with Doug Bowman and Dan Cederholm and, and, and a few others that were really investigating CSS and what it could do creatively, but then sharing it and writing it and, you know, and, and doing that. And, you know, that's how you that's how you build a reputation. And I think that the same thing still applies. You know, the mediums change, the technologies have changed, but putting good content out into the world is a very, very good way of giving people a feeling for what you can do and what it might be like to work with you. And that's the, the key difference. You know, personalities and people really, really matter. And particularly today when, you know, there's 18 million people that can write CSS, most of them better than I can. But the experience of working with me is unique. Like it's the same, the experience of working with you is unique and the working with everybody is unique. Unless you're working with robots, you know, it will be a different experience. And that is one of the most difficult but most important things as a freelancer to get over is, you know, how do I show people that, you know, I'm good and reliable and fun to be around? And so one way you were doing that was for your, your blog, your blog, did that lead to other things? Yeah, it led to conference talks. It led to um, to book writing gigs, um, all of which has you know carried on for for twenty years or so. Nobody's doing conferences, obviously now, um, but you know other stuff. And you know it does you good to have a topic and be able to speak confidently about it. And that's, you know, that's great training for loads of things in life, not just for, you know, standing in front of a client and, and pitching yourself or pitching an idea or a creative concept or whatever. It's great experience. How did your business continue to grow? Because, you know, we're still, still I know, 10, 15 years back and we're going through bigger companies, I guess, then as your reputation grew. 
it hasn't really changed that much. I've got to say, um, our best financial year 10 years ago was pretty much like our best financial year now. But the difference is that I don't work with as many companies in a given year anymore, you know, because my rates are higher and um, and the companies that I'm working with have bigger budgets. And I also get hired for, you know, for longer periods of time as well. So the business hasn't really grown. You know, it's still, you know, the same amount of, 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 of hours in a day and, and equipment on a desk. But I just do the same amount of work for fewer people. Um, and that's the biggest difference between, you know, then and now. Now, you said our best financial year. So does that mean you, you now work with other people or is it just you? Is, are you a royal we? No, I have always worked with my my wife, my dear darling wife, my long-suffering wife. So she looks after the the business end of the business, um, which leaves me free to, um, you know, talk to you on a podcast and uh, and and concentrate on the the creative stuff. That's cool. So, what literally you've always worked that way, or, or was there a certain point where you went, actually, I could do with some help? No, it's always been that since the very very beginning you know we both jointly own the business um we both take exactly the same salary out of the business and it's always worked that way in fact obviously things have changed over the years and we we now have less administration time and costs than we than we used to so you know because i'm doing fewer jobs per year we're raising fewer invoices which means chasing fewer people for money but we don't do the same stuff that we did, you know, 10 to 15 years ago. We don't buy people's domain names anymore for them. We don't, we don't charge them for hosting on a, a server that we buy from somewhere else. We don't do any of that kind of stuff anymore. So, you know, we might send out three invoices a month now as opposed to, you know, 20 or 30. I see. So all of that was able to be taken off you or not that it was ever on you by the sounds of it but uh it allows you to concentrate on what you felt you were good at yes absolutely and that that's been um a real you know it's been a pleasure um but it's also been a real lifesaver because i am the world's worst multitasker um so having somebody that Actually, I do know today how much money is in our company bank account because we are just fi finalizing our financial year. But, you know, day to day, I have no clue um, how much money in is, is in our bank account, who owes us money um, or what invoices have just gone out. And or I've got absolute faith that all of that is just being taken care of because it is. And that is liberating. And that's another thing that I think that a lot of people when they're freelance struggle with is how do I deal with all of these kind of, you know, competing demands on time and attention and having somebody that even if it's your mum, that will just deal with all of those things for you. It's worth its weight in gold. And so did you work as a company name as well? We did because we were always going to have a limited company and we were always going to be VAT registered. So we set up Stuff and Nonsense Limited um, back in 98 and do everything through that, every royalty um, for a book, every conference fee, every job, everything gets put through the business. And that's worked out incredibly well. And yet you managed to maintain, and you'll probably, you, uh, you probably hate the phrase personal brand. But the fact is, like, it's not stuff and nonsense who's on a stage speaking, for example, or writing a book. But and Andy Clark is a, is someone too. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I think the two things have, are kind of synonymous. And, you know, I'm in the process of redesigning our website, my website. And... It is very much about that kind of personal brand to the extent that the current website has gorillas on it. And I really love gorillas. And in the past, it's had mods and scooters and, and John Lennon and Planet of the Apes and various other things on the website because 
it's a way of making a statement and it's a way of potentially differentiating you from the armies of other freelancers or, or web designers or business people that are out there doing pretty much exactly the same thing. Mm. So if, if I look at your site and I look at like your client list, like Disney or Greenpeace, the UK government, WWF, like that, these are massive names. How did you find working like at that level? Was it had you learned like everything you needed to on on the way to doing that, or was it difficult in any way? Um, well, doing the jobs are always challenging. I'll let you into a little secret, you and you and your listeners. Right, none of the companies that I have got on my client list came to me directly. They all came via somebody that either I knew or I'd made a connection with or had seen me speak at an event. Um, the Home Office, for example, was the uh, the Hillsborough Independent Panel, which was to do with the, the Hillsborough disaster. And that particular job came to me because the UX designer who'd been given the job of, of, of project managing that particular report website, I'd known for many, many years. And when they said, we need a creative designer to, to do the, you know, the pretty stuff, he came to me. Um, and the same applies to a lot of that. So I suppose it's 50-50 split between people that would just know me by reputation or um, contacts of contacts of contacts. Very, very, very rarely do you get um, passing trade. People that will do a Google search for, you know, a freelancer or designer or whatever, and, you know, they'll, they'll hop on an email. Very, very rarely. How did you cope with like pricing in your business over the years? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, you know, back in back in the very, very, the very early days, you know, we do a website for four hundred quid. Four hundred quid today buys you, you know, half or two thirds of a day, depending on you know, depending on who you are and what you're doing. Um, so. Pricing has always been a difficult one. I mean, I think that I've, I think that I've undercharged massively um, for you know a fair amount of time. The biggest challenge is to get the initial quote right, and I base that on you know a daily rate that I thought was achievable. And I package it in such a way that I now say that we don't do anything that lasts less than a week because I'm I'm the world's worst multitasker. So the way that I will I won't say that I'm you know X amount per day. I, I will say that I'm you know four thousand four hundred pound a week and build it that way. And I'll say well you know and I think that your project will take you know between two or three weeks. And that kind of makes it understandable. The the interesting thing about kind of finding that level, one of the things that I, I did was on a Friday, any estimates that I gave, I would double. So I had double your day rate Fridays. And I did this for a fair amount of time until people started to say, ouch. Um, and then I realized that, you know, perhaps I'd kind of hit the limit. And that was a really good way of, of increasing the, the rate. And if you do that, it, it has a number of benefits. People often, they often think that, you know, charging a, a higher rate is somehow profiteering. You know, why are you 800 pound a day and, you know, somebody else is only 400 and, you know, 400, you know, are you, are you twice as good? Um, and the answer, of course, is no. But, I think that there, there are benefits of um, trying to charge as much as you can, both for you and also for your client. And I know that sounds contradictory, but if I'm comfortable with the money that I'm earning for a project, it means that I don't have to watch the clock. I don't have to feel bad or, or go back to a client and say, do you know what? This is going to be an extra X amount because, you know, it's taking me two more days. 
Yeah, obviously, if they massively change the scope, that's a different conversation. But it means that I can not have to worry about money and use all my mental capacity to solve a design problem. That's a massive benefit to a client. The other thing is I can say, you have my 100% attention. I'm not having to, I'm not dipping in and out of other jobs while I'm working for you. You know, the time that you're spending with me, you're paying for is exclusively yours. That's a great benefit for a client because, you know, projects run on for endless amounts of time and drift. And, you know, I, I don't like that to happen. And then the other thing is by charging a, you know, a, a reasonable rate, a comfortable rate, it means that I'm more likely to be around when the client needs me next. So whether it's, um, you know, six months from now or two years from now or whenever, if the client's got a problem, I'm still going to be in business. And, you know, I wouldn't have had to go and work in Tesco's or go and work at a big agency or whatever. That level of kind of financial security is, is actually really valuable for a, for a client because, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen is, you know, they come back in two years or six months with a, with a problem. You're not around. What, what the hell do they do then? So mm. I actually don't think that it's, um, it's a, a bad thing to charge a really good but fair fee that takes into account all of those considerations and i noticed like and this kind of follows on from what you just said that you know you like to give a hundred percent attention to a client you have your availability on your site and when i saw that i liked that but i was thinking like how do you choose what to work on and when i am incredibly fortunate in that um i i now work three weeks out of every month with a, a company in Switzerland. And that gives me um, really great financial and work security. It means that my my schedule is actually pretty much written for the whole of 2021 now. And what I do is I work three weeks solidly, and then I have either one week or two weeks off um, between sort of, you know, call them sprints if you like one or two weeks where I can do other things and I could, you know, I could do nothing or I could work on a book or as has happened throughout 2020 when I can't leave the bloody house is that, well, I might as well work then. Now I'm, I'm probably not going to work for, you know, Welsh widgets, but when something really appealing comes along, like a busking music festival in Bern in Switzerland, I'm going to go, yeah, do you know, I could do some really nice stuff with that and I could really enjoy doing it. You know, I can probably charge them less too because I'm not having to worry about, you know, making every last penny on every project. And that's how the last year or two has, has gone and it's been incredibly good you know from a stress mental health point of view from a business point of view from a creative point of view in terms of like dealing with clients like there's always this thing which gets shared like as soon as somebody starts in a facebook group speaking about contracts contract killer uh, soon sort of rears its head in the comments uh, which always will of course lead back to your website so this was like a, a contract that you put out there that others could use, right? Yeah. I mean, this is, again, it's going back 10 years or more now. And I would get contracts to sign from clients that, you know, were 18 pages long. Or I would go online to find a web design contract. And, you know, you could, A, it was written in kind of, you know, jargonese. But also, you know, I could tell that it was just cobbled together from, you know, cut and paste from lots of different sources. And I just thought, you know what? I don't want to give my clients this. All I want to say to a client is you're going to hire me to work for this period of time on this project and you're going to pay me X and I'm going to do some things and you're going to do some things. And we both understand what's required of us. And, you know, if things go wrong, which, you know, sometimes they do, then this is what needs to happen so that we can all stay friends. And you can do that in like, you know, one or two pages. So I just sat down to to, to write it 
and then again decided to 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 share it because you know what's the good of me keeping that to myself so it wasn't that i kind of went out there to say you know this is the best contract in the world because i'm damn sure it ain't but i'm damn sure it's better than nothing at all which is what a lot of people use so you know w- would it stand up in you know in the high court does it have holes you know can it be improved yeah absolutely but it's a damn sight better than doing um doing knob all <laughs> there's another one that people can use uh english phrases to cling to um do you use that that contract today still with your clients or sometimes you have to use what they give to you um generally speaking i use that yeah even my even my swiss client um that's the contract that we're currently uh, we're currently working on um i think we might have to uh because the, you know they've changed a lot over the last few years so um i think that we might have to switch to you know a, a different contract for 2021 but you know that's okay because it's you know it's one client and it's a very very specific application but if i was to send a contract out to welsh widgets tomorrow it would be exactly that one bar you know bar a few changes that have been made along the way that you know are no longer relevant so have we covered all the way that pe- people find you so you started writing you started speaking you started a podcast i did do a podcast um we are my friend John and Paul and I are possibly going to be starting a new one again soon. Um, but I, I, I did that because I wanted to talk about the the business aspect of it. We called it Unfinished Business. And the original concept of that podcast was to talk about a lot of the stuff that we're, you know, that we're talking about now. Um, you know, contracts and rates and how you find clients and, you know, deal with issues and manage your time and and all of that kind of stuff um of course this me being me it quickly dissolved into um you know a weekly therapy session um (laughs) where we would talk about um weeing in hotel kettles and um and um and brioche buns on a on a burger but so it kind of ran its course (laughs) I, just so that you know, I don't actually wee in hotel kettles, but you you never know who has. Worth so clarifying. It it is very very much worth clarifying. So always take your own travel kettle, kids. So yeah, and that that was interesting. I doubt that it did any more than you know some of the other stuff that I did back in the day. Apart from you know podcasts like this do give you know it, it's good to put a, a you know a voice and a personality to to a name you can say a lot more on a podcast authentically than it's easy to do by writing it down is there a difference in what you like offer and get you know paid to do uh now like i notice can you use the word consultant as well as designer on your website are those two different things like the consulting and the doing well, the reason why the consulting stuff is there now, and actually it won't be when I redesign this website, uh, is that I wanted to try to move away from doing and more about the what's the best way? More about the the yeah the consulting angle rather than just the pure designing angle. And I've got a lot of friends who who consult. It's a very grand word. But a lot of people that, um, you know, specialize in particular areas. My friend Harry Roberts uh, specializes in uh, performance. Paul Boag specializes in kind of how businesses adapt to digital, you know. And those kind of, those kind of things kind of appeal to me. And one of the things that I think that the, that the web lacks as an industry in general is a focus on art direction and creative direction in the same way that um, the advertising industry or the graphic design or magazine publishing industry focuses on it. We, don't, we just don't seem to, to do that kind of stuff online. Um, and I wanted to, to kind of carve a niche for doing that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so that's why the whole kind of consulting thing kind of, you know, I, I, I launched in a way. But at the end of the day, 
99% of the time people are looking for a specific you know solution um, and they want something designed and I am more than happy to 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 do that so it's actually something you're stepping back from promoting yeah it's not going to appear at all on the new website um, mm. I'm purely going to talk about design and the portfolio and some of the stuff that we talked about today really you know as well as showing off the work explaining what the process might be and you know what the overall experience of of working with me is is like and that's the that's the difficult challenge to you know get across on a on a quick view of a website but you've also started coaching and mentoring others right yeah now that is something that i that i like to do and uh you know when you get to a when you get to advanced years you know, you do build up a, a fair amount of experience and there's not an awful lot of support or training of people in terms of a lot of the things that we've been talking about today. You know, if you're a young guy sort of starting out, then how do you deal with some of these issues? There's not a lot of support out there for that kind of thing. But the other thing, the thing that I really, really enjoy doing is working with people who are of a similar age, maybe slightly younger, because there's an awful lot of people that will have been doing, you know, they'll be either running their own business, big or small, or they'll have been freelancing or self-employed for a very long time. And they're at the stage in their life and their career where they think, do you know what? I need to reassess this. I need to figure out what I want to do for the next 5, 10, 15 years because, you know, maybe I can't just carry on doing what I've been doing for the past 5, 10, 15 years. And that's the kind of thing that I think this whole kind of mentoring and support thing can be valuable. I've been mentored by people like Paul Boag and other uh, people in the industry and have found it incredibly valuable. How do you approach that dilemma yourself? That whole, you know, like what's the, uh, I don't want to say the end game. <laughs> like what's, what's like the, the, the future of my freelancing look like? Yeah, that's, a, that's a, a, really, a really good question. I reached a point in 20... 1718 I suppose maybe a little bit before that where I'd been doing this type of work running this business in the way that we run it you know for 20 years nearly and I had just about had enough I you know I was burnt out I was mentally dysfunctional I let things slip from a business, from a work point of view. And I remember sitting on holiday with my wife um, saying, do you know what? I can't do this anymore. You know, it's just, it's, it's gone. It's finished. I cannot do it anymore. I've reached the end of the road. Um, and that, that was the point where, and hopefully other people don't reach that point. Um, and I was very fortunate in that um, I actually got an opportunity to work in Australia for a couple of years. And that, brought me back it gave me the space and the time to you know be enthusiastic about design and really figure out what I wanted to to work on and without that lord knows where we'd be but it is it is a, a difficult uh, a difficult thing for a lot of people because it's such an unpredictable industry it's such an unpredictable bloody world at the moment that you do need to you know consider um you know what am i going to do you know what else can i do you mentioned feeling burnt out a few years ago what would you say how, how do you feel about like your work-life balance we always said that we don't work from home we live at work and that was not good and i think that if you are the sort of person who it's, it's, it's great to get satisfaction from your professional life. But if it goes too far and, and you kind of value yourself and your contributions on work rather than on other things, 
then that balance is is way off. And it took me a very, very long time to, you know, come to that realization. So I am, you know, I'm incredibly bad at work-life balance still. Um, I I will still work way more hours in a day than I should. And I, I don't watch EastEnders often enough. Um, no, I mean, I'm sure there are other things between watching soapy, crappy programs and, and doing work, but I, I work too much and I still get very, very absorbed in it. The difference is, is that now I have periods of time between those sprints and that's, you know, that works for me now. So I don't mind sitting up till two or three in the morning working on a client project if that's when I'm in the flow. But then I'll know that, you know, the the following week I can, um, you know, I can watch I'm a Celebrity and not get out of my Pokemon onesie until four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> now, I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself to make two true and one a lie and let me figure out the lie. What have you got for me, Andy? Well, the first one has got to be that I stay in my Pokemon onesie until four o'clock on the afternoon. Unless, of course, I have an earlier video call with a client. The second one will be Lenny Henry once taught me how to do a David Bellamy impression. <laughs> okay. Grapple me, grape nuts. <laughs> and the third thing is that... I sat on a train with miners' trade union leader Arthur Scargill, and the only thing he said to me between London and Sheffield was, "It'll be fish next." Oh my goodness! Uh, this episode is going to have to come with a glossary of English history, in the form of Lenny Henry, David Bellamy, and Arthur Scargill. But the fact so Lenny Henry is huge comedian and entertainer how did he end up teaching you how to do an impression of naturist naturist is that the right naturist yeah naturist nature biologist i suppose david yes Um, i I always fear that i'm gonna say the one which is nudists yes uh, when i'm saying (laughs) right but which i don't want to contemplate with david bellamy so how did you end up with lenny henry teaching you how to do that impression well funnily enough lenny henry came and did a gig at trent Polytechnic Student Union when I was uh, when I was at art school, and my friend Matthew and I um, went to the gig, got completely shit faced, and decided that we were going to um, hang out in the car park of the student union waiting for Lenny Henry. Um, and when he drove past in his car, we were going to get down on, you know, we we're going to crouch down and do the whole grapple me grape nuts thing as he kind of went by, um, which we did. And he stopped the car and got out and said, no, lads, you don't do it like that. You do it like this. Grapple me grape nuts. <laughs> and um... so, OK, so the David Bellamy impression was part of his set. At, he was famous for doing impressions at the time. I get it. N- number three, you sat on a train with Arthur Scargill, who was a legendary political figure then. Yes, King Arthur of the National Union of Mine Workers. Why did he say it'll be fish next? Was the buffet passing or was he talking about industries that they would... Well, I was sitting opposite him on a train between London and Sheffield and we got delayed somewhere along route and the uh you know the conductor came over the over the tannoy and said you know i'm sorry for the delay you know there's leaves on the line and king arthur said it'll be fish next and then went (laughs) went back to reading his copy of the daily telegraph which i always that was the the most incongruous part of the whole the whole episode was why King Arthur was was reading the most right wing British newspaper. I was about to say that that didn't add up, but you flagged up the fact that that newspaper doesn't sound right. Okay, so maybe ah, uh, okay, but Pokemon right. So you have a Pokemon onesie. Who are your top three Pokemon? Uh, 
Pikachu. Mm-hmm. Pokemon Gold. Right. And Pokemon Silver. Okay, I'm going to say the Pokemon onesie is the lie. Yes, it is, in fact, a lie. <laughs> Those other crazy things. And I, I, I could, we could go on forever talking about this stuff. Um, but I, I could tell you all sorts of uh, strange facts. Um, I could tell you that my first job was um, making My Little Ponies in a plastics factory. Is it oh, true? Amazing. Is it true? Please say it's true. It is actually true. Yes, that's a good one. I could also tell you that I took the first digital photograph in the UK. Is it true or is it a lie? That is an incredible story and it's true. It is in fact true. That's amazing though. How did you end up taking the first digital photo in the UK? So... This is going back to about 92-ish. And the very first digital cameras that came in, or camera backs that came into the UK were made by a company called Leaf. And I can tell you a lot about it. It was a little square chip. Um, It could only take black and white photographs. This thing was the size and shape of a house brick. And it (laughs) weighed about the same. And it fitted onto the back of a regular film camera um and at the time the you know the, the the dominant kind of you know small camera like that was a Hasselblad that's the camera that supposedly the astronauts took to the moon and blah 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 and I was working at a photographic place in in London um in about yeah, 91, 92. I can't remember exactly when it was. And these three guys in suits walked in and they asked to hire um, a Hasselblad camera and some lights for an exhibition where they were going to be showing off this Leaf digital camera back for the very first time. And I was fascinated by this. So I said, yes, of course you can, if I can come with you and help set it up. So I went to the business design center in Islington and we set this thing up and plugged it into a, um, a Macintosh Quadra computer. And I had brought with me a little kind of light table and a couple of lights and a, a prop, a bottle of red wine um, from the place that I worked as a little kind of prop. And we set this thing up. We got it out of the box. It was the first time it had been out of the box. It had not been, you know, it was sealed. Um, we unpacked it. We plugged it onto the back of the Hasselblad camera. We booted at the Macintosh and I then pressed the shutter. Wow. And this was the first time the Leaf had been in the UK, and it was the first time that it had been fired. So not that there is anybody else that can kind of, you know, really corroborate that, I suppose, but I know it happened. It feels like you should be on some sort of Wikipedia entry for that claim to fame. That's a significant claim to fame. No, I I think I'd rather be on a Wikipedia page um, about Lenny Henry. (laughs) Now, if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be? Don't do it, you damn fool. No, this is something that I've I've tried to teach my son um, and I think is one of the most important things um, is that, well, a few things really. First of all, the world does not owe you a living. Right. You there is no you know, you don't have the right to the perfect job. You don't have the right to, you know, whatever. It it is not like that. The real world is not like that. The world does not owe you a living. You make the most of your own opportunities and you work hard to do it. And you need to put the work in um, and you need to be adaptable because things are not going to stay the same. If you get a job at 22, you're not going to be doing the same job when you're 65. And if you are in control of your own destiny as opposed to you know working for your, working for a company and you do it right then i think it can be a, a really great way of you know being independent making a living and doing something which you enjoy nice do you mind if I, i'm just intrigued has there been moments over the past 20 years when you considered like hiring other people and like growing a a thing beyond yourself and your wife 
Oh yeah, we did it twice. Um, I went into business with a with a developer back in two thousand four, um, and we set up a, a sort of a sister company, and that had uh, sort of six to eight staff, I suppose, overall, and that uh, didn't work out. Didn't I, no, it didn't work out. It was it was a miserable experience. I'm not a good manager. You know, I don't play political games um, in the way that a lot of people do. So it was a miserable experience. Uh, slightly better, um, a few years ago, we hired a very nice lady who worked with me for two or three years um, doing kind of print design and graphic design related stuff. And I enjoyed working with her. And um, I learned a lot about about print work and about graphic design principles from her and that was great but then you know situation changed so um you know we're we're now doing what we're doing and it's back to how we were i see so it's that whole thing in the main it was that you didn't like you didn't like the feel of that you prefer working by yourself well also i i like designing things don't like doing paperwork i don't like you know looking at accounts I wouldn't want to grow a business. I've got tremendous respect for people that do. I never, it's like, you know, if I worked for a company, um, you know, this thing where, you know, you become a developer or designer and then you're a senior something and then you end up managing a team or whatever. That'd be my worst nightmare. I I don't want to manage a team. I don't want to develop a strategy. I want to do the nice stuff. I want to get paid for making things look great. And... I've got, you know, no interest in managing people. I'm terrible at it. Andy, it's been so good to talk to you. Go to beingfreelance.com and there will be links through to Andy so you can find him online, uh, check out his website, uh, find him on social, say hi, uh, check out his books and his talks. If you, When conferences exist again, no doubt you might see him on one of the lineups. Uh, also at beingfreelance.com, we'll put links to, we've actually spoken to Harry Roberts and Paul Boag uh, over the years, quite a while ago, but you can go and check those out at beingfreelance.com. Uh, while you're there, of course, uh, come join us in the Being Freelance community. There's a link. It's a great place to be. So come join us uh, at um, all at beingfreelance.com. And if you're a freelance parent, don't forget why you got your phone out with your podcast app go search for doing it for the kids that's the other podcast i do for freelancing parents Uh, but for now andy thank you so much and all the best being freelance ah cheers mate lovely to speak to you 